Well, good morning again, everyone. Again, happy Father's Day. I got a, a suspicion that that good, good father song is being played in every church across America today. We're going to do a special study seeing how it is Father's Day. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the book of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Richard is up and he's got Bibles in his hand. I'd love to bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. Luke, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of the Gospel of Luke here in chapter 7. Speaking of Jesus, Luke writes here in verse 1, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. The title of my message this morning is A Man of Great Faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. Uh, Lord, what we call Father's Day, Lord, but every day is a day to you, Lord, that we should uh, devote to you and, and serve you. And we thank you, Lord, though, that this day is set apart, that we can get into your word and we could uh, hear from you, Lord, knowing that your spirit will speak to our hearts. We pray that you give us not just information, but application in our lives that would change us, draw us closer in our relationship with you. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you as Lord and Savior, we pray, Lord, that they would do so this morning. But we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, happy Father's Day to you dads out there. I'm reminded of a story about a, a woman or mom whose newborn baby was asleep in the nursery in the baby's room. Mom also was asleep, you know, being sleep deprived from just having a baby. Well, she woke up and went into the nursery only to find her husband in complete silence, bent over the crib, taking it all in. She was touched by the fact that her husband was just obviously amazed by what he saw. And she thought to herself, oh, how wonderful. Look at him. And she walked over in that tender moment and grabbed his hand and said, honey, what are you thinking right about now? And he got up from that bent position and stood up and said, I just can't figure it out. How they can make a crib like this for only eighty nine ninety five? It's just, just amazing. You know, that's a dad. You know, you know, we're unique creatures. I've had a number of women say to me over the years, I just don't understand men. Well, you probably never will. And I've had a number of equal number of men who say, I don't understand women. It goes both ways. 
But woman, to help you understand men, let me just go through some common phrases that you might have heard men say over the years. Let me retranslate them for you, what he really means. For example, when a man says, it'll take too long to explain, he means, I have no idea how it works. (laughs) When a man says, take a break, honey, you're working too hard, he means, I can't hear the game over the vacuum cleaner. When a man says, that's interesting, dear, he means, are you still talking? When a man says it's a guy thing, he means there's no rational thought pattern connected with this and you have no chance at all of making it logical. When a man says, can I help with dinner, what he means is, why isn't it ready yet? When a man says, "Uh uh-huh, sure, honey, or yes, dear, he means absolutely nothing. It's a conditioned response. When a man says, you look terrific, what he means is, oh, please don't try on one more outfit. We're late and I'm starving couple more. When a man says, that's not what I meant, what he means is, if something I said can be interpreted two ways, the one of the ways makes you sad or angry, I mean the other one. (laughs) Finally, when a man says, you know how bad my memory is, what he really means is, I can remember the theme song to Gilligan's Island, the phone number of the first girl I ever kissed, all the vehicle identification numbers of every car I've ever, ever owned, but yes, I forgot your birthday. Husbands, Fathers, it's always a good thing to come out on church on Father's Day because I believe that God has something special to say to us. But I also believe that God has something special to say to all of us this morning, not just dads and men. So the title of my study is A Man of Great Faith, but I think we can apply this to all of us this morning. I've divided up this section of Scripture into three points if you're taking notes. Number one, a man or woman of great faith will come to Jesus in time of need. Number two, come to Jesus in humility. And number three, Come to Jesus in faith. So a man of great faith will come to Jesus in time of need. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 7. And when he concluded all his sayings, speaking of Jesus, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Now a centurion was a Roman soldier. Being a centurion meant that he was the commander of Roman troops, numbering anywhere from 100 to some 600 men. So he was over these men. Now, this was an important position. Not just anyone became a centurion. The Roman historian Polybus described men who became centurions as natural leaders known for their steadfastness and dependability in the heat of the battle. So, so these were men that, that, that were clear thinkers. They were sophisticated, men of strength and stature, a man's kind of man. They were the poster boys for the Roman army. So when it comes to emotions, these guys were men of steel influenced by the Stoic philosophy of the day, which basically means that they had no emotions. The old, I think it was Simon and Garfunkel's song, I'm a rock, I'm an island, I touch no one and no one touches me. Their mode of operation would be don't reach out to anyone, don't get involved, don't get attached. We are here to do a job. We are here to represent the Roman Empire. We are the few, we are the proud, we are the centurions. And that's who they were. But this centurion was a little bit different. This centurion was a man with a great need. His servant, we read here, was sick, and his reaction to that was unusual. Because servants, in the time of the Roman Empire, really had no rights whatsoever. There was a Roman writer who wrote this, every year a man should take stock of his possessions and should hold on to that which is still producing and beneficial and should get rid of that which was still no longer, was was no longer productive. So slaves were included in getting rid of those that were no longer productive. 
a slave was no longer capable of putting out a day's work, was of no value. So when he got to that place, he would just be put out, left to die. In fact, a slave was only considered to be a piece of property, so you could actually put a slave to death and not face any charges because it's your property that you own. But again, this centurion was different from that. For some reason, he had a special attachment to the servant. No doubt, he was like a son to him, and the thought of losing him grieved his heart. So in desperation, he comes to Jesus with his deepest need. Look at verse 3. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. You know what's great about this, this man's faith? Jesus is his first choice. He goes to Jesus first. Listen, we should always turn to Jesus first. So often after we've exhausted all of our, our possibilities, some of us think, well, now I guess it's time to try God. I, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. All we can do is pray. We should have prayed to begin with. Listen, a, a man of great faith will come to Jesus first in his time of need. They'll seek the Lord first. And I would say that one of the greatest needs of fathers today is for our children to see that God is first in our lives. That when there are needs in our family, that the first place we turn to is the Lord. Because what we may not realize when our children are young is just how much they take in from just watching our example. How much they they learn from just watching what we do and and how we react. And then the words that we say, we don't realize the things that we say to them as children carries with them all through their lives. I shared this before, my, my daughter Ann, you know, I, I stopped on a railroad track one time and just started teasing her. She's terrified of my stopping on the railroad tracks to this day, you know. Like, no, don't stop, Daddy, keep going, keep going. And, and I think, gosh, I just teased her one time. I feel horrible about that. But, but you realize, you realize the little things that we do can make a big impact in our children. Listen, a child's view of God depends so much upon the father-child relationship that they had growing up. As Christians, we use the phrase, our heavenly father. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. Even as a child, when you prayed our father, you associated your heavenly father with your earthly father. And as adults, you know, when we hear the word Father, we use the word Father immediately in our minds. We play that word association game, and it takes us back to the only experience of a father that we have known on this earth, our own father. And that can be either good or it can be bad. Because again, so much of that child's idea of who for the father God is depends on who their earthly father was. And so as dads, we want to make sure that our kids are seeing an accurate representation of what it means to be a godly father. What it means to bring every need that we have to the Lord first. That our children see it. The children come to us and maybe they have a headache. I got a headache. Well, we're going to pray that God heals your headache first. Not just open up the cupboard and give them a couple of Tylenol. They have a cough, other cough. Well, let's pray and see if God can heal you first. Taking every need that they have, bringing it to the Lord first. Here's another reason our children need to see God first in our lives. As dads, your son is going to grow up and marry a woman someday. He needs to know what kind of man he needs to become. And that daughter of yours is going to grow up and marry a man someday. She needs to know what kind of man to look for. I've discovered this about dads with daughters. Having two daughters myself, it's never easy to give that precious little girl away on that wedding day. No matter how great the guy is, it's, it's still difficult. One father admitted at a wedding, he said, I feel like I'm giving a million dollar Stradivarius to a gorilla. 
I can relate to that. I'm not saying my son-in-law is a gorilla. Okay, I'm just maybe at times, but but my point is, man, set we set the standard. Okay, guys, show your daughters the man that you want them to marry by being the man that God has called you to be. The man that, that comes to Jesus first with every need and in every circumstance. That your children know that when they have a need, the first thing that they do is they bring it to Jesus. We're to be the leaders of our families. But where there is weak leadership in the family, it results in a weak church and in a weak society. And we've seen that today. Fathers and husbands, God has made you the head of the house. Leadership and authority in the home has been placed on your lap. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, how an elder of the church should be. And Paul writes there that he should be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? While not all men are called to be an elder in the church, all Christian men are called to live godly lives and to manage their homes in a godly way. But so often we're not, we're not taking that responsibilities and we're sending our kids out into the world unprepared. There was a late Ruth Graham who once said this about our children. Young people are confused. We turn our children out in high-powered cars under the highway of life without road rules, road signs, guardrails, center lines, and with faulty brakes and wonder why there are so many wrecks. Your children need love, appreciation, and guidance. Love your children and let them know it. And I would add that it's, it's in the home where male leadership is needed the most. I read an article just this morning, right before I was going over my notes, with the title, Fewer Americans are Celebrating Father's Day Because More Kids Are Growing Up Without Fathers. And they gave the statistics about how it's grown from the 60s into today and how many single-family homes there are. Here's, you know, be it fathers who are uninvolved in, in their kids' lives or just raised in a single-parent household by the mothers or grandmothers. Here's a principle, man. If you're gone all the time, you've got no message for your kids. No message for your kids. If you don't live a holy, godly life in the home, you can't tell them any about any moral standard. Your speech is going to fall short. But if you're around home, your speech is enhanced, your words are powerful, and your words are meaningful. They're, they're credible because they, they've not only heard the words, they've seen your walk. They've watched you. They've seen your example. Otherwise, it's just like that scene in The Wizard of Oz. I think you all know it. When Dorothy and that little dog Toto and their three new friends make their way to the Palace of Oz and they're all standing there and they're just enamored by the huge face on the wall and the smoke is coming out from the side of his face and I am the great powerful Oz. And then the little dog runs and pulls the curtain back and you see the, the, this feeble little man pulling the levels up, and, uh, levels up and down and making it happen. And it's the man behind the little curtain or the little man behind the curtain. Listen, if we don't live what we say to our kids... They see the mask, but they eventually will see that man behind the curtain. And that will make a huge impact in their lives. That's why our greatest need as dad and moms as believers is to come to Jesus first. This Roman centurion, this man with great faith, had great faith because he recognized his need and recognized the only one that can meet that need is Jesus Christ. This man who had extraordinary love and compassion and humility turns to Jesus first. Now, why do you think this becomes such an important issue? Because in everybody's life, there's going to come a crisis, some point of crisis. For some of you, maybe the worst has already happened. And for some, the worst is yet to come. But the key issue is, where will you turn when you're under pressure? 
Where will you turn when the world collapses in on you? Where will you turn? Where, where will you place your faith in that time? No matter what happens, no matter what you're going through in life, you need to know that Jesus is there. Life is filled with joy. It's filled with sorrow. There are happy days. There are sad days. But the Lord is there every step of the way. One writer put it this way, and I quote, Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, or bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that is not of this world. How true that is. Because hard days will come. Storms will always come. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. But the, the good news is Jesus will be there for you to see you through. You can trust Him on that. I love A.W. Tozer's quote. He says this, If our faith is going to have a firm foundation, then we must be convinced beyond any possibility that, and doubt that God is altogether worthy of our trust. Now, some of the best words about this are found in that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I love that song. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what needs we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Listen, God is our Savior, but He's also our friend. And He's told us that we can come to Him with our problems. We don't, we don't have to carry them around. We're told to cast all our cares upon Him because He cares for us. You know, it's like the old song says, Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So much pain and things we go through, all because we don't come to the Lord first. So number one, a man of great faith will come to Jesus in his time of need. Number two, a man of great faith will come to Jesus in humility. Look at verses 4 through 7. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now for a military man, a centurion with at least a hundred soldiers under his command, he could have easily have said, I will be expecting you at 0800 hours. He could have said that. He could have easily said, obviously, you understand the importance of my rake, of who I am, what I've done for you. No, what does he say? He says, I'm not worthy to come to you, neither am I worthy to have you come to my house. Listen, before God, every person is spiritually destitute, in serious trouble, and unable to help themselves. Some people just have a hard time admitting this. And I would say, especially men, because of our pride, we don't want to admit that we need help. I'm a man, I, 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 it's a man's world, I'm a man's man, and I don't need your help because I'm, I'm, I'm manly. You know, and, and we think this, and it's hard for us as men, especially to acknowledge that we need to reach out to God, that we need His forgiveness, that we need His help. I'm reminded of the, of the, the story in Second Kings chapter 5 of the man named Naaman, who was a, a great a general from Syria, a great war hero a man of fame and fortune. He was loved by the people, much like this centurion. But Naaman had a problem. He was a leper. He had leprosy. It was, a, it was an incurable disease, a, a state of living death in which your body was literally decaying as your, your limbs would fall off and, 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 and such. 
And Naaman could not get rid of this disease, but he heard that there was a prophet in Israel who could help him. So Naaman got on his chariot and, and no doubt traveling with his entourage, he made this journey to the prophet and, and pulled up in front of the house and, you know, expecting all he had to do was honk his chariot horn and he would maybe come out with some kind of dramatic healing and blessing to him. Maybe he would, you know, blow on him or something and he'd be healed or something. But instead, the prophet sends out a servant and says, go down to the river Jordan and duck yourself seven times and your leprosy will leave. Uh, Naaman's going, he won't even come out here and talk to me and he's telling me to go down to this, to this, 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 this river. I mean, Naaman's pride got the best of him. The river Jordan? I mean, why should I go to the river Jordan? It's mucky, gunky river. I'll go back to Syria. We've got better bodies of water than the Jordan. And as he was leaving, his servant said to him, Naaman, why are you being so high and mighty over, over this? What if he's right? Just try it. What, what do you have to lose? And I'll tell you why Naaman didn't want to do this. Because to be healed and follow the prophet's prescription, he would have to peel up all of his armor and show his true condition. It was humiliating. But you see, God designed it that way because before we can be forgiven, we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this great Naaman walked down and he peeled his gleaming armor and took off his wonderful garments and he was exposed for who he was, a, a man with leprosy. And he walked down into that water and he immersed himself one, two, three, four, five, six times. Nothing happened. Seven times he goes down and comes up and his skin was that of like, like a newborn baby. But he had to humble himself first. Listen, if we want to be forgiven, if we want to see God work mightily in our lives, we have to humble ourselves before God. We have to admit that we have a need. And understand first and foremost, this centurion, he had a right view of himself. He says again in verse 6, I'm not worthy to come to you, neither am I worthy to have you come to my house. The word worthy there means deserving, sufficient, or able. He's saying, I'm not deserving, I'm not sufficient, there's nothing in me that deserves for you to do this in my life. Man, that's a, a true uh, humility. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 34:18, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. We're told in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, are broken in a contrite heart. These, O God, you'll not despise. What is it about us dads, especially us men, that, that when it comes to what we do, you know, we have so much pride. Never, we can, can't admit we're wrong. You know, I was, I was mistaken. I was maybe not right. We just can't say the word wrong, you know. We can't admit that our wives maybe have had a, a better idea. It's a pride. It's been said that pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is the greatest friend. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. In fact, in his book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter called just that, the great sin. Let me read a quote from that chapter. He writes, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. There is through pride that the devil became the devil, Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. He goes on, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It's a universal problem. Every person, everyone suffers to it, from it for some degree. That's why over and over and over again, God's Word tells us, humble ourselves before the Lord and He will lift us up. God takes pleasure when we humble ourselves and He loves to bless and He loves to exalt the humble. You see, just as, as pride is the root of all sin, so humility is the cure. 
So here this man comes to Jesus in humility. Why? Because great faith is a humble faith. Let me say that again. Great faith is a humble faith. Great faith exercises humility. A humble person will always have an accurate assessment of his own circumstances and life. And he comes to grips with just how sinful he or she really is because they're seeing things through the, through the grid of the lens of the Word of God. It's like, uh, uh, you know, many of our lives are, are like lives prior to the discovery of the microscope. When the microscope was invented in the 1600s, the man that discovered it, this guy's name was Anthony Liu Wenhook, when he first took a look at some water in which he thought was perfectly clear and pure and began to look at it for the first time, water through the microscope, he saw little squiggly worms and he was shocked. He shouted, there's worms in our water! Listen, if you put your life under the microscope of the Word of God, we're going to see just how prideful we really are. We get an accurate picture of just how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a man with great power and position and prosperity, but he saw himself as nothing in the light of Jesus. He saw that he needed Jesus. He came to him in humility. Again, he says in verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I, I, I love that he sees that, uh, that he is his Lord. He recognizes that he's the Lord. Humility, he realizes he's in no place to demand anything. So humbly he asked Jesus to extend mercy. This brings us to our third and final point. Number one, a man of great faith will come to Jesus in his time of need. Number two, a man of great faith will come to Jesus in humility. And number three, a man of great faith will come to Jesus in faith. Look at verse 7 and 8. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So even though this, this centurion had great power, he had position and prosperity, his great Faith was seen in his humility based on the person, position, and power of Jesus Christ, not on his own place, in his own place. He understood the magnitude of Jesus' power. Lord, just say the word. You don't even need to come here. Just speak the word and it will happen. He knew the power through the words of Jesus. Men, do we? I mean, think about that for a moment. We're told that God spoke the world into existence. Hebrews 1 declares that He upholds all things by the word of His power. There's a, there's a new song out called So Will I. We did it a couple weeks ago when we had our Ugandan guests out. I think it's a beautiful song. Beautiful lyrics that talk about how the Lord spoke the world into existence. But there's some that have a problem with it because one of the lines it says, And as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, evolving in pursuit of what you said. And they're going, oh, evolving, oh, it's evolution, and they're saying this is speaking of theistic evolution. I don't think that was a writer's intent because the rest of the lyrics, uh, because of the rest of the lyrics, but I do think a better word might be unfolding. As you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath, unfolding in pursuit of what you said. Because the whole song speaks of the power of God, just in the words, just, just, you know, creation unfolds. I saw a video uh, last week of, of a, a dandelion as it comes up out of the ground and they did it in that, that time elapsed thing where, where it shows it and, and it starts to bloom and it's bright yellow then all of a sudden it closes up again and then it opens up again and you got the dandelion. I mean, that's just amazing. And that's what I think that the song is, is, is you know, teaching us, talking about. You know, just as God speaks and, and, and the creation came into existence. 
As God speaks as the self-existent one, the creator of the universe, he does not speak in vain. The word of God is so powerful. When he speaks, things happen. His creation reveals his power in just speaking this world into existence. His word is powerful. We all know Hebrews 4.12. I've shared it many times. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. Now, do we really believe that about his word? Do you approach his word that way? God is powerful. I know what your word says. You're going to do amazing things through your word. Do you believe that it has the power to change your life? Paul declared in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Do we believe that? So I think when it comes to sharing our faith, that the message of the gospel is so powerful, the word of God is so powerful, that it's not contingent upon my ability to share it. The gospel itself has power to, to transform the life of everyone who believes it. But do we share it with conviction? You see, we all need to understand that this book that we have in our laps is the Word of God. It's living, it's powerful, and it has the power to transform my life if I just put it into practice. If I would just follow His Word. And I look at this centurion's view of who Jesus was and the authority that Jesus possesses and the power of His Word. It's no wonder that this centurion was able to have this great faith and was able to say with confidence, don't trouble yourself coming to my house. Just say the Word and I know it will be done. Now we read here that Jesus marveled. He's blown away by this great faith. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned into the house, found the servant well who had been sick. You know, there's only two times in Scripture that we read that Jesus marveled. One was a time that he was in, uh, this time, this centurion's great faith. The other is found in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, when Jesus goes into his own country, in his own city of Nazareth, and the people were rejecting him. And it says there that he marveled at their unbelief. So Jesus marveled at the, the, the faith of this, this man, the great faith of this man, and he marveled at the people's unbelief. The indication there is that of all the people that should have believed, they watched him grow up. They knew his heart, his integrity, and yet they failed to believe that he marveled at their unbelief. Folks, Jesus is looking at us this morning as a church, as men, as women, as dads, as Father's Day. I wonder how he's marveling with us. Is he marveling with our great faith or is he marveling at our, our unbelief? It's an interesting question to think about. What is Jesus marveling at? In Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32, we're told, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Knowing God produces strength and great exploits. Maybe you're looking at, at being a dad and, and being a godly father and raising a godly family, and it just looks like way too much. God would say, do you trust me? Just be led by me. Oh, how we need to exercise great faith when it comes to being leaders in our families and in our homes. We need to bring everything to the Lord in humility, believing that He can do great and mighty things that we can't even know. You know, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, we have the same story. We read there in verse 13 that then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Man just accepted Jesus' words at face value 
didn't have to go and say, well, I'm not going to believe unless I go home and see for sure. You just believe the Lord. That's faith. That's faith. What is faith? It's the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things uh, hoped for. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, what is faith? It's the confidence, assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. So as we close, what do we learn from this story? Number one, when crisis hits, we must run to Jesus. Don't ever be reluctant to do that. And man, I especially appeal to you on this because as man, as dad, we are supposed to be the guy that has the answers. The guys that can, can fix anything. The guys that can resolve anything. We're the provider. We're the protector. We're the spiritual leader. We have the answers. But as a father, and when a father comes humbly before God and says, God, help me with this, that's a glorious thing. No way is it sacrificing your masculinity. Oh, that's a girly thing to do. No, it's, it, it's being a true man of God. That's what it's showing. God, help me with this. I put it in your hands. Not my will, but yours be done. When crisis hits, run to Jesus. Don't back off. Number two, Come humbly before the Lord, not demanding, but believing that God can do great things. And number three, come to Him in faith, believing His word to be true, and then leave it in His hands. Don't get deterred. Don't get discouraged if He doesn't answer your prayers quickly as you'd like Him to. Jesus said, Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock on the door, will be open. In the original language, that can be translated, Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Be persistent. Don't give up. And if it seems that God is not answering, keep praying anyway. You just may be using this to allow your faith to grow. Give God time to work in His way. I've said this many times recently. We, we no longer sing about waiting on the Lord. We need to wait on the Lord and wait on Him. And maybe He won't say yes right away, but it's only because He wants to teach you. He wants to mature us. He wants us to grow. Maybe there's been something you've been praying about for a very long time. Maybe as a father you've been praying for a prodigal son or daughter. And the more that you pray, the further they off they run and you wonder, is this even working? Is God even hearing my prayers? Yes, He's hearing you. And yes, God is working. But He's going to do that work in His timing. So don't give up. Don't give, give up praying for that prodigal grandchild or son or daughter. Don't give up praying for that person that, that you're bringing before His throne right now. Be persistent. Stay with it. Dad, share the gospel with your children. They're not too young to hear it. They're not too old to hear it. And sons, share the gospel with your dad. They're not too, too old to hear it. They need the same thing we all need. We need to know that we're all sinners separated from God and we need God's salvation, that Jesus paid it all for us. They need to be taught. They need to be discipled on how to live for God in a world that's really totally opposed to that. They need to know how to navigate through this culture in this world, and we have the answers. It's through the Lord, through His Word. They need to know how to serve the Lord because as a father, we're just simply a partner with God in making disciples of His children. So one of the greatest characteristics about God to me is that the Bible calls Him our Father. He's our Father. I love that. Uh, that. Of His royal titles in Isaiah chapter 9, one of them, He's the everlasting Father. I love Psalm 68 verse 5 that says, He's a Father to the fatherless. I found that especially to be true in my own life with my earthly father passing away when I was just three years old. For the next 56 years of my life, my father God has never failed me once. Not once. Any need that I've had, he has met there. Any crisis I've been in, he's been there for me. Even before I knew the Lord, he was there for me. And he loves me greater than any earthly father could. 
Let me close by saying that this centurion was a man of great faith and believed Jesus as a result. His servant was healed. And maybe you've gone through a time of difficulty, a time of crisis, lately as a husband or a father, and you're here at this church, and maybe as a favor to your wife, you've come to church, or maybe as a favor to your kids, you've come to church, or maybe as a dad, your kids have come to church this morning as a favor to you. Whatever reason you're here, whatever it is you're going through, uh, bring your needs to Jesus this morning. Your life can be turned around. Bring your life to Jesus this morning. If you don't have a relationship with Him, if you've never believed in Him, put your faith and trust in Him. See, you're missing out on so much. You have a Father, a good, good Father that we all sing about this morning who loves you very, very much. He doesn't want you to stay in that place of sin. He wants to have that relationship with you. So as soon as service is over, if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, the elders are going to be up front to pray with you and give you a Bible and help you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I encourage you to make that commitment to Him today. And now finally, what we do every year on Father's Day, and you guys can expect this if you've been, if you've been here before, I want all the dads to stand up this morning. All the dads, stand up. We're going to pray for you this morning. Come on, get up. Look at all those fine dads out there. See, man, God bless you guys. And if your wife is sitting next to you or your kids are sitting next to you, just your dad, grab, grab, grab hold of him. Put your hand on his shoulder or, you know, grab his hand, you know, you know. If you're your son, grab his hand. It's kind of girly. Just maybe put your hand on his, on his shoulder or something. But I'm going to pray for the dads right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every man in this room that is standing, Lord. We thank you for what this represents. Men that honor their commitments, first of all, to you. Lord, and they, they've honored their commitments to their wives and then to their children. Lord, they haven't run off and chased things in, in this world, Lord, but they're here seeking after you, Lord, seeking to serve you and to know you better. Lord, I pray a special blessing upon them today. Lord, these men of integrity, would you bless them and continue to have your hand upon them Giving us, giving us wisdom, Lord, in leading your children, our families, being the men that you've called us to be. God, help us to do that by your power and by your strength. And Lord, for all of us here this morning, we pray, Lord, that whatever need we face, that we bring it to you first and foremost, that we come in humility and we come in faith, knowing that you are a good, good Father, seeking to bless us and lead us, provide for us, You'll never let us down. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.